Howdy, Hootie Thunkers. This is the host of the Hootie Thunker podcast, Zeb, here, talking to you. This see, uh, this episode is called Explosives. Pretty simple. Um, and after researching all this, Google search after Google search of, can you make black powder with household items? And what components, what chemical components make up TNT and all that? I'm sure the NSA is very interested in this podcast as well. Maybe I got a few listeners over at the NSA. Anyway. Let's get right into it with the recommendation segment. A bit of a throwback here. Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Um, it came out in 2001. So yeah, pretty old. Um, but the animation holds up, starring Michael J. Fox, featuring some of the most entertaining ensemble of characters in any adventure story I've ever seen. I recommend you watch Atlantis, The Lost Empire. It's uh, pretty good. It's a great old movie. If you've never seen it, definitely check it out. If you have seen it, rewatch it. Um, my favorite characters are Cookie, the Cook, and Vinny, the Explosives Guy. That's why I thought of it, just, you know, Vinny, the Explosives Guy for, the, for the, the theme of the overall episode. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a cool character. That scene where Cookie gives the bacon grease to Milo at the end of the, oh, at the, end of the uh, movie always cracks me up. Because that's how my dad and all his uh, old hunting buddies used to treat the bacon grease. It was like the biggest deal. <laughs> bacon grease is always used for cooking when hunting. And that's how Cookie cooked all their meals. <laughs> and, and Cookie always said in the movie, there's four basic food groups. There's four food, basic food groups. Beans, bacon, whiskey, and lard. So it's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good movie. Check it out. Um, worth the revisit. Now, for the main event. I like things that go boom. You know, fireworks. You know, spectacular things. Action movies where the guy's walking away from something exploding. Explosions are cool, right? I'm also a huge chemistry nerd. so. I wanted to learn more about it, and I thought, well, no, why not just learn? Why instead of just learning about it, let's put it on a podcast. I'm aware explosives have been used for violence throughout history and are still used that way today, but that's not the main focus of the episode. I'm not talking about history and wars and stuff. This episode is about the explosives themselves, the chemistry behind them, and how they shaped our society as a whole. So let's get right into it. Why? Before we get into actual explosives, why do things explode? It's very chemical. Um, the chemistry behind it, you know, don't worry. I'll try to keep this brief and relatively simple, even though I love chemistry. I'm aware that most people aren't really that big fans of the subject. It can be boring. But for me, in high school, when I did, took my first chemistry class, it was hard. I think I got a B. And um, it blew my mind to realize the building blocks of reality. So you have the elements like hydrogen, helium, carbon, oxygen. We're aware of those, right? Those are the, the building blocks of reality, the elements. And they're made, you know, each are different components of atoms. They're the most basic units of elements. When more than one atom binds together, scientists call that like a molecule. And molecules like H2O, you know, they are the building blocks of chemicals, um, what most people call chemicals. Side note, technically everything is a chemical because, you know, that's just technically everything's a chemical. But usually when people are referring to chemicals, they mean a compound or substance um, that has been purified or prepared, especially artificially. So that's, you know, like bleach or something like that. A chemical reaction occurs when two or more chemicals called the reactants combine and rearrange their atoms in a way so that what comes out at the end, the product is different than the starting materials. Everything wants to move toward a lower energy. Reactions are driven by energy. Some reactions occur spontaneously, like how iron reacts with oxygen to form rust or iron oxide. The product of this reaction, iron oxide, has a lower energy than the reactants, iron, and oxygen. So they moved 
Both iron and oxygen put together, they move to a lower energy, which is rust. But not all reactions happen spontaneously. Sometimes you got to add some energy in there, typically in the form of heat or you know, energy, the cause of the reaction. An explosion occurs when the reaction is so favorable that there is a large release of energy. An explosion can then drive more reactions. So the reactions keep going until there are no more molecules left to react and create a product. The energy released usually comes out as heat, which can cause fires to break out. So side note, that is why you shouldn't mix household chemicals. You can create an explosion or even poisonous gas. Now, whenever you mix ammonium, ammonia and ammonia, sorry, ammonia, I think is how you pronounce it. Whenever you mix ammonia and bleach, it makes mustard gas. Yeah. And you have, you probably have those two things in your house right now. If you mix a cup of strong urine with a cup of bleach, a violent reaction will occur. And you could make chlorine gas when cleaning the area around a toilet or when pet stain uh, stains are cleaned. Both chlorine, uh, chloramine and chlorine gases are immediately irritating with a very pungent odor, causing watering of the eyes, runny nose, and coughing. So to sum up my chemistry lesson here, an explosion is caused when a rapid expansion of gas from a chemical reaction. It is violent expansion in which energy is transmitted outwards as a shock wave. So that's an explosion. It's like a super fast reaction, a chemical reaction that happens, and then it also starts affecting all the other molecules around it. When certain elements or compounds come into contact with each other, um, they explode. Now, let's talk about some of those certain compounds, you know, specific explosives. The first one, like the OG explosive is gunpowder, more specifically black powder. The term gunpowder refers to a number of substances used to propel missiles out of guns and for blasting work, uh, blasting work in mines. But I will only be talking about the OG gunpowder, uh, the first of these substances to be created, black powder. Black powder is made up of uh, saltpeter, which is like potassium nitrate, sulfur, and charcoal. Um, when prepared in roughly the correct proportions, 75% saltpeter, 15% charcoal, and 10% sulfur, um, that's what you get, black powder. Once you light it, black powder burns fast. Um, what's left is 40% gas and 60% solid byproduct. If you light black powder in a confined space, the gas that comes from the explosion can be used to propel things. That's a very crude description of how a gun works. You light the black powder in a bullet um, or the casing, and then the bullet itself at the edge of the casing is pushed out of the casing through the, the, the tube or basically the gun rifle, and that's how a gun works. Black powder is sort of insensitive to shock and friction, sort of, meaning don't press your luck. <laughs> Too much shock could still set it off, uh, but it's not like, you know, you drop it on the floor, it's not going to explode. Um, most of the time, you have to ignite or cause a reaction by using an open flame or high amounts of heat. That's why, you know, don't set gun, don't don't throw a bunch of bullets into a fire. They will explode and they will shoot projectiles. Um, but if you drop them on the floor, although not recommended, most likely they won't go off. The gun industry has mostly switched to smokeless powder these days, uh, but black powder is still used for ignition charges, primers, fuses. Uh, blank fire charges and military ammunition, like blanks. If you switch up the ingredients just a smidge used in fireworks, time fuses, signals, squibs, I don't know what a squib is, and spatting charges for practice bombs. So black powder is made up of a fuel, uh, that's the charcoal, charcoal or sugar, and an oxidizer, that's a saltpeter or niter, and sulfur, 
to allow for a stable reaction. Carbon from the charcoal plus the oxygen forms carbon dioxide and energy. The reaction would be slow, like a wood fire, except for the oxidizing agent. Carbon in a fire must draw oxygen from the air. Saltpeter provides extra oxygen, so it like, you know, speeds that up. Um, gets the oxygen in there a lot quicker, and it burns a lot quicker. Potassium nitrate, sulfur, and carbon react together to form nit or nitrogen and carbon dioxide gases and potassium sulfide. The expanding gases, nitrogen and carbon dioxide, provide the propelling action. So a lot of chemistry talk there. Uh, Gunpowder tends to produce a lot of smoke. There you go. You can wrap your head around that. Which can impair vision on a battlefield or reduce the visibility of fireworks. Changing the ratio of ingredients affects the rate at which the gunpowder burns and the amount of smoke that is produced. So the history of black powder, is you'll find this probably more interesting than the chemistry. The farther back you go in history, the harder it is to pinpoint an exact date. And the culture that created black powder is about and as old as they come. Historians believe black powder originated in China, uh, where it is where it was being used in fireworks and signals by the 10th century. Originally, it was made by mixing elements, sulfur, charcoal, and saltpeter. Um, the charcoal traditionally came from the willow tree, but grapevine, hazel, elder, laurel, and pine cones have been used as well. Charcoal is not the only fuel that can be used. Sugar is used instead of main, uh, many uh, pyrotechnic applications. So when the ingredients are carefully ground together, the end result was a powder that was called serpentine. The ingredients tended to require remixing prior to use, so making gunpowder was very dangerous. People who made gunpowder would sometimes add water, wine, or another liquid to reduce that hazard since a single spark could result in a smoky fire. Once the serpentine was mixed with a liquid, it could be pushed through a screen to make small pellets, which were then allowed to dry. Between the 10th and 12th century, the Chinese developed the, uh, here we go, Huo Quang, basically fire lance. Um, and, you know, what a cool name, a fire lance. It was the first gunpowder weapon. But I, I don't know if you'd call it a gun. It was a short-range proto-gun. That means, you know, sort of gun. The fire lance channeled the explosive power of gunpowder through a cylinder, initially like a bamboo tube. So you had this giant bamboo stick, and at the end, you had uh, a tube filled with black powder and a bunch of crap anything from like spoons to knives, whatever, at the end of it, debris, and you light that on fire, and it was like a handheld, like, grenade, except grenades go in all directions. These would go in certain directions, not the most um, precise weapon, but it worked. The Chinese would light their fire lances with projectile, would, yeah, would light their fire lances, then projectiles like arrows or bits of metal would shoot out of the other end along with a lot of fire. And imagine... Um, they didn't always get the proportions right, and these things probably blew up in their faces a lot of the, uh, or the opposite, um, that they would light it and it would just sort of fizzle a bit, tiny puff of smoke, and would hiss up in the projectile would, would not shoot out. <laughs> By the 13th century, the Chinese were making legit guns made of cast, uh, cast brass or iron. The guns began to appear in the West by 1304 when the Arabs, that's what the website said the arabs produced a bamboo tube reinforced with iron uh, that used a charge of black powder to shoot an arrow black powder was adopted for use in firearms in europe from the 14th century but was not employed for peaceful peaceful purposes such as mining and road building until the 17th century so we have these great great black powder 
used for weapons for hundreds of years and then you know 700 years later you're like oh maybe we could use it for things not to kill people typical humans it remained a useful explosive for breaking up coal and rock deposits until the early 20th century when it was gradually replaced by dynamite for most mining purposes we'll get to dynamite in a bit before gunpowder the world's Wars were waged up close and personal, with only bows and arrows being the most effective long-range weapon. Also, there were no fireworks before black powder, and we couldn't really mine for squat. I know this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I think without black powder, the first explosive, the world would probably probably be a lot more barbaric. Think about it. Um, the level of empathy it takes to shoot someone, I mean, it's a big deal, but compared to being up close and personal and stabbing them, it's... That's how they did warfare. The difference is, I don't know. Maybe it's what made us a little bit more civilized. Maybe not. I don't know. That's just what my thinking on the matter. Definitely changed the game. Next up, we have TNT. Now, can't do an episode on explosives and not talk about TNT. It is literally the standard for measuring other explosions. When an asteroid smacks Earth's surface, the news tells us how powerful the blast was by saying uh, how many sticks of TNT it would take to replicate the force of said asteroid. Uh, we do the same thing with other bombs. So, you know, like the kiloton of TNT is a unit of energy equal to 4.184 terajoules. So, yeah, TNT is the standard. We got to talk about it. It translates to trinitrotoluene. That's what TNT actually means. Trinitrotoluene. Uh, more commonly known as TNT or more specifically, 246 trinitrotoluene is a chemical compound with the formula uh, C6H2NO2. Uh, three and CH3. So that's carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen dioxide, and methyl. TNT is a yellow solid. It is sometimes used as a reagent in chemical synthesis, but we all know it is an explosive. Um, that's what it's mainly used for. They do use it for other stuff in labs. One of the things that makes TNT so special is that it's actually hard to get TNT to explode. It's not like black powder, one flame and kaboom. In order to get it to go boom, you can't just smack it against a rock or even put it in a conventional oven unless you crank the temperature up really high. TNT melts at 82 degrees Celsius. That's 178 degrees Fahrenheit. So it melts at that point, but it doesn't explode until 240 degrees Celsius, which is 464 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's quite the big difference in there. You can melt it and still have it not explode. So you can do lots with TNT before it, me before it melts your face off with an explosion. That's why Militaries of the world would melt it down and pour it into munitions casings all the time for like armor piercing stuff. TNT's history. Now, that's why TNT origins are a bit peculiar. It was first used as a dye for yellow coloring in 1863 by a German chemist named Julius Vilbrand. When I heard that, before knowing the whole melting point thing, I just heard that's the whole, you know, reason I'm doing this podcast. I heard that TNT was used as a yellow dye, and I thought, how many people blew up just trying to? color a sunflower in, in the middle of the night in the in the 1800s they're like hmm i think i'll write a letter in yellow this time kaboom no <laughs> that's not how it happened because it had to be way hotter but maybe someone left it by a candle or you know a lit lantern i don't know <laughs> because tnt is so insensitive to heat and shock it took three decades until someone realized that it would make for a fantastic explosive in 1891 a guy named carl hausemann hausemann um, another German chemist was one who realized TNT's potential to go um, kapow, kapow. I just wrote my best impression of an explosion. So he's the one who realized TNT could go, kapow, you know, TNT is so insensitive.
that it was exempted from the UK's Explosives Act of 1875. So the UK made a, a rule, don't use explosives, right? They left out TNT because they didn't know it could explode. It was not considered an explosive for the purpose of manufacture and storage. The German armed forces adopted it as a filling for their artillery shells in 1902. TNT-filled armor-piercing shells would explode after they had penetrated the armor of British capital ships, whereas the British lidite-filled shells tended to explode upon striking the armor, thus expending much of the energy outside of the ship. So the British started replacing lidite with TNT in 1907. Makes sense. Armor-piercing, you want it to explode inside, most damage happening inside. That's better um, as, you know, if you're the one shooting it. Also, fun fact, TNT is super poisonous. If uh, you get it on your skin, it gets really itchy and irritated. TNT uh, will also turn your skin bright yellow. During the First World War, um, all the men were on the front lines fighting in the war, and the women were filling up munitions on a massive scale back home. The female munitions workers who handled the TNT chemical found that their skin turned bright yellow, which resulted in their acquiring the nickname Canary Girls or just Canaries. People exposed to TNT over a prolonged period tend to experience anemia and, and normal liver functions. Anemia is like a disease in the total amount of red blood cells or hemoglobin in the blood or a lowered ability of the blood to carry oxygen. It can be rough on the heart. And your liver is really important, so it's bad that it affects your liver too. Blood and liver affects spleen enlargement and other harmful effects on the immune system have also been found in animals that ingested or breathed trinitrotoluene. There is evidence that TNT adversely affects male fertility as well. So not good. It affects a lot of stuff. They think it also might be a carcinogen, carcinogen, um, but they they only test that out in animals, not people. If you eat TNT, you, your pee turns red because of a chemical breakdown. I didn't feel like going into that, but chemical breakdown. But most people who experience it immediately think that it's blood in their urine, so they freak out. <laughs> Just imagine that conversation with your doctor. Doc, you got to help me. I'm pissing blood. <laughs> then he comes back. After running some tests, good news and bad news, imaginary patient. Good news is you are not peeing blood, but bad news is that, uh, yeah, someone has been putting TNT in your raisin bran every morning. You've been eating TNT. <laughs> TNT doesn't only poison people. It, it pollutes its surroundings quite terribly. Residual TNT from manufacturer storage can use can pollute water, soil, atmosphere, and biosphere. So it's a, in 2001, the United States... Environmental Protection Agency, that's EPA, declared TNT a pollutant and made the removal of TNT very important for military industrial people. So don't eat TNT. Don't let your babies play with TNT. And don't store TNT in your basement. It's bad for the environment. <laughs> in case you didn't already have to know that, don't mess around with TNT. It's it's not just an explosive. It's super poisonous. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a great yellow dye in a pinch. <laughs> with TNT... We humans were able to do so much more than with explosives. I mean, you can pour this stuff into bottles. There are so many uses for TNT than uh, other than explosives. So it's it was actually a really good tool. It just sucks that it's poisonous. We got better dealing with the poisonous part. Next up is nitroglycerin. This stuff is wild. It's also called glycerol trinitrate. Powerful explosives, and it's a powerful explosive and an important ingredient of most forms of dynamite. It is one of the most easily ignitable explosives on my list for this episode. It is also used for nitro nitrocellulose in some propellants, um, especially for rockets, missiles, and the race cars that used to be on the Fast and the Furious back when those movies were actually about racing. Yeah, when they say nitro, that's sort of what they're using. 
Nitroglycerin is also used as a uh, vasodilator in the easing of cardiac pain. So it's a medicine. Lots of people think TNT and dynamite are the same thing. They are not. They're very different. Um, so pure nitroglycerin is a colorless, oily, somewhat toxic liquid having a sweet burning taste. <laughs> when I read that, when I read the sentence uh, doing my research, um, that it has a sweet burning taste, I burst out laughing. I pictured a scientist in a lab coat with his <laughs> with this stuff in a Petri dish. He looks at it, takes some notes. He smells it, takes some notes. Then he tastes it and is like, oh, that's not bad. It tastes pretty good. And then his head explodes. <laughs> this is nitroglycerin. Why would anyone taste it? I guess someone had to sacrifice to find out nitroglycerin taste as a nice, sweeney, sweet burning aftertaste. <laughs> it was first prepared in 1846 by the Italian uh, chemist uh, Asanio Sobrero. That's a terrible Italian pronunciation. Anyway, uh, we're calling him Sobrero by adding glycerol uh, to a mixture of concentrated nitric and sulfuric acids. The fine caused a sensation because nitroglycerin's explosive power was far beyond that of gunpowder. Um, so Sobrero thought 19th century Italy was going to have like laser guns in no time because he had this way better than gunpowder stuff. The trouble was nitroglycerin was highly unstable. It would cause grisly explosions, including one in San Francisco that leveled a building and killed 15 people. So it's great, real more explosive, but also a lot more irritable. Nitroglycerin with the molecular formula C3H5ONO23 has a high nitrogen content. It's 18.5% and contains sufficient oxygen atoms to oxidize the carbon and hydrogen atoms while nitrogen is being liberated. So that is one of the most powerful explosives known. Detonation of nitroglycerin generates gases that would occupy more than 1,200 times the original volume at ordinary room temperature and pressure. Moreover, the heat liberated raises the temperature to about 5,000 degrees Celsius. That's 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The overall effect is the instantaneous development of a pressure of 2,000 or 20,000 atmospheres. The resulting detonation wave moves at approximately 7,700 meters per second. That's more than 17,000 miles per hour. Nitroglycerin is extremely sensitive to shock. And so rapid heating or anti-rapid heating, it begins to decompose at 50 to 60 degrees Celsius. That's about 120 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit and explodes at 218 degrees Celsius. That's 424 degrees Fahrenheit. A serious problem in the use of nitroglycerin uh, results from its high freezing point. So at 13 degrees Celsius, 55 degrees, and the fact that the solid is even more shock sensitive than the liquid. So at room temperature, nitroglycerin is super, like super really sensitive to shock. If you are handing it, handling it, you have to do that awkward shuffle thing you do when you pour a drink too full to the brim or something. Like you don't, you have to be super careful. If nitro is in Vegas weather, at like 120 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts to decompose and become even more unstable. If nitro is in a nice fall weather in New England, you know, at like mid 50 degrees Fahrenheit, it freezes and then it becomes even more irritable, even more unstable. This is one angry explosive, so it's really hard to deal with. The safe use of nitroglycerin um, as a blasting explosive became possible after the Swedish chemist Alfred B. Nobel developed dynamite in the 1860s by combining liquid nitroglycerin with an inert porous material such as charcoal or diatomaceous earth. So nitroglycerin plasticizes collodoin, collodoin, 
uh, a form of nitrocellulose to form blasting gelatin. It's a very powerful explosive. The Nobel Prize is named after Alfred B. Nobel. Yeah, the uh, internationally recognized prize for peace is named after a guy who made one of the deadliest explosives a whole lot easier for the world to world's militaries to use. Kind of ironic. At about the same time Nobel was perfecting dynamite, scientists in Britain were using a molecular call, a molecule called amyl nitrate to treat angina and excruciating chest pain connected with inadequate flow of blood and oxygen to the heart. Nothing or noting similarities between amyl nitrate and nitroglycerin, London physician William Murrell became the first to recommend nitroglycerin as a treatment for angina in 1879. I might be pronouncing angina wrong. <laughs> okay. He did so after carrying out several studies with nitroglycerin on himself as well as on other people. The World Health Organization considers nitroglycerin one of its essential medicines for basic health uh, systems. Even Alfred Nobel got a prescription for nitroglycerin from his doctor. Nobel declined medication and wrote about it in a letter. My heart trouble will keep me here in Paris for another few days at least, until my doctors are in complete agreement about my immediate treatment. Isn't it the irony of fate that I have been prescribed nitroglycerin to be taken internally? They call it a trinitrin as so as not to scare the chemist and the public. Uh, you read you read that right. The same blood flow stimulating prior pr properties uh, that make nitroglycerin so useful medication um, for relieving chest pain also may enable a longer lasting sexual experience, according to UK firm Futura Medical. The company's nitroglycerin gel with the brand name of Xanafil goes inside a latex condom. It is designed to stimulate blood flow to sustain men who report having trouble keeping erections with a condom. So the goal is to encourage safer sex by convincing those same men to stick with condoms. So a lot of uses for nitroglycerin. Um, as an explosive, nitro is testy as heck. But when combined with Nobel's uh, porous material, it is super handy. Plus, the compound is good for your heart and can keep your willy hard. So lots of uses for all these explosives today. There are a lot of explosives out there. If I cover them all this episode would be long as poop. Instead, I think I discovered a pattern. It seems all explosives aren't just used for destruction and violence. All of them seem to have a beautiful yin and yang to them, you know? For example, without doing any research, I know that nuclear power can be used for the greatest destructive force wielded by man, or it can be a virtually infinite source of electric uh, power to help improve the lives of everyone. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Tools aren't evil. It is the ones who wield them. Now, I swear I wasn't trying to make a political statement when I started doing episode about explosives. I just wanted to learn more about them. I think I might be a bit of a pyromaniac, but like the explosive version of that, I don't think I try to look up. There's no word for that explosive maniac, but kind of like the explosive expert archetype uh, from half of every heist adventure movie, like the Vincenzo Vinny Centorini uh, from the Disney movie Atlantis. You know, they fascinate me. So. Hope you enjoyed my episode on explosives. I know it was really chemistry heavy, but it was interesting to learn them all. And hope you tune in next week, Huda Thunkers. Thanks for listening. Check out the blog. Catch you next week. Adios.